Shalom, this is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ilah, a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a Rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. another edition of the RZ Weekly Podcast, our weekly podcast, or bi-weekly in this instance, about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. Um, um, my name is Ruben Spolter. We're back here. We're back with Rabbanit Mali Brabski. Rabbanit Mali Brabski, how's it going? Baruch Hashem. Good answer. Yes. Rabbanit Mali Brabski, <laughs> as we record this, we're in Omicron. Mm-hmm. Omicron, Omega. Okay. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, it's affecting in Israel and around the world, all of us, you know, Ein Bait Asher Ein Sham Omicron. And uh, um, so everyone should be well and stay healthy, etc. Mali Bavsky is a Jewish educator specializing in Tanakh and Machshevet Yisrael. She's also a clinical social worker with a private practice in Gutzitzion. This year, she's serving as a field advisor for YU's Wurzweiler School of Social Work in Israel. Have you taken on any additional jobs in the past two weeks, Rabbanit Mali? No, not in the past two weeks. Not <laughs> in the past two weeks. Okay. Rab Johnny Solomon, how are you, Rab Johnny? Uh, I'm, I'm Baruch Hashem, just for you to know. You know, a, a great example of how Israel is, the guy who runs the local Makolet, he asked me a couple of days ago, how are you doing? I said, Basedo. He said, don't say Basedo. Answer Baruch Hashem. I said, why ask the question if you're going to tell me I'm going to answer it? But so the answer is Baruch Hashem, and I'm doing okay. Who is the first person in history who said Baruch Hashem? First person in history, do you know? Anyone? Did they stump you? I should know. You have. Let's Google it. Know. The answer is in this week's parsha. It's Yitro, Vayomer Yitro, uh, Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Baruch, of course, of course. And this goes to our topic. It's always the, 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 the non Jews to the outside, the converts who see 100%. the bracha of the Jewish people. Anyway, that's my vote for. Uh, for this week, Rab, Rab Johnny Solomon is a teacher at Midrashat Lindenbaum, MTVA and Matan. He is an editor at Mosaic Press, a virtual rabbi, an independent Jewish educational consultant, and he also visits schools and communities around the world. Now is the time to contact Rab Johnny to schedule him for the coming year. Rab Johnny, have you got any slots left for, uh, for the fall or you're all booked up? Uh, I'm working on my schedule. Okay. Uh, beyond this, Rav Johnny writes a daily thought on Dafyomi and serves as a posik to his local shul in Evan Shmuel. Hey, Rav Johnny, do you have any other jobs that you've taken on in the past two weeks? Uh, He's got a fig. You know, <laughs> well, the truth is, I, kind, I coach authors. That's something I'm trying to get into a little bit more. So people who are writing books who may need a little bit of help between oh, I manuscripts forgot. and Rav publishing. Johnny also has now a weekly YouTube share on the Parsha, correct? That's right. Right, that's right. and you now have in the series where you interview authors of books, correct? Well, it, yeah, it's a choice I've cho- taken. Sometimes I write reviews. Nowadays, I also prefer to interview authors. Yeah, Rav Johnny, uh, will you fix my car as well? Um, you know, I'm useless. I'm, I'm useless with cars. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, this, is there anything that he doesn't do? Uh, my name is Ruben Spolter. <laughs> Ask my wife, she'll tell you. But any which way, <laughs> moving on. I'm Ruben Spolter. I'm the director of the Rewarding Teacher Training Program at the Herzog College in Israel. I am also the Shorashim representative for Igun Rabban Soar for English-speaking countries. I am the founder and director of Kita.org, the online Jewish classroom for families, and I also run a project called the Mishnah Project, which teaches Mishnah Yomit to Jews 
literally around the world. Start learning today. You'll never regret it. I, I promise you. Okay, today we have decided to focus on a phenomenon in the Jewish world. We're not new to it, but we've been thinking about talking about it for a long time, which is a book by Dara Horn called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Now, before we even discuss this, it, it, we, we, we cannot begin the discussion about, which is focused on anti-Semitism and the results of anti-Semitism and the suffering of the Jewish people from anti-Semitism without mentioning that this week, the world and the Jewish world once again re-experienced this exact trauma by watching the Facebook feed of the Beth Israel congregation in Coleyville, Texas, right outside Fort Worth, where a person uh, uh, took the rabbi and three of his congregants hostage. He traveled all the way from England to take three, four Jews hostage in order to, uh, in order to uh, whatever, you know, he, he, I, don't, I don't really want to get into why he did it, but it has reignited the trauma, um, the, the trauma we've all experienced. And what I've, what I've said to people is, you know, we, we have this around the world. It's not just a, a chutzla aritz phenomenon. Like the, now I see on my Facebook feed, all of my friends are writing about how they've up security and there's a guard and they remember that they have to be careful. And of course, this is a reminder for everyone to be vigilant. But at the same token, you know, I was, I was working in Alon Shvut, where Mali lives, in the Herzog College, and there was, a, there was an, attempted, uh, an attempted attack uh, right out to right in uh, Tzomen Hagush. So this is not something, uh, you know, that, that's unique to any one part of the world. It's unique to everyone. The only difference is our guards, thank God, wear army uniforms and carry machine guns in the streets and make me feel a little bit safer. So they're a little bit farther out than inside the building. But... This is a phenomenon that all of us suffer from and experience. So we thought we'd talk about the book itself. I'm going to ask Molly to give a little bit, not a synopsis of the book per se, but her perceptions of the books, what she liked about the book, and then we'd like to really just sort of talk it out. How does this book and its, and its, uh, its, its theories, or I would say its, uh, it, its hypotheses, how do we react to it, and how is it really, why is it causing such a storm in the Jewish world, such a shaking up in the Jewish world? Molly, take it away. Okay. Uh, first of all, just since you mentioned the uh, hostage stand standoff, I think we should also mention um, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker. I'm sure many of us have seen the video of his interview. I think it was with CBS. Um, and we're struck with his grace under pressure. Um, and I think it's definitely worth a watch. Ruby, have you seen it? You're yeah, I saw it. I mean, yeah. first of all, it speaks to the critical importance of training. Yes. And uh, I think that's very, very, very valuable. I, 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 can, can I give my two cents or that's not the topic? You can say it's not the topic. Depends what your two cents are. My two cents is <laughs> I'm, st I'm beginning to feel like, like all these shuls have security guards, but I feel like the, the, the shuls and Jews should begin to learn how to train themselves. We should mm -hmm. stop being afraid of, having, of being armed ourselves and, and start to understand that we need to protect ourselves and security guards are great and hired security guards are great. But it's time for us to endure it. Like the rabbi went through training, he went to, and that was valuable to him. If you're going to have a shmirah, I see no reason why you have to hire an outside policeman if the, if the members of the shul should be able to protect themselves. And that's the world in which we live, and we have to get used to it. That's my two cents, but okay. I don't want to... Right, so I'm not going to relate to that. It's not a soapbox. Yeah, um, not okay, all right. So, I, I, so before we started, I, I was the one who was like, we must talk about this book. I love this book. I'm obsessed with this book. And right before we started recording, Johnny asked me, like, why do you, why why do you love this book so much like why did it grab you so i thought that would be a good place to kind of start off the conversation um mm -hmm. you know so so here goes okay so so what i said to johnny which i'll kind of repeat here and elaborate is i, I loved this book because i think that what first of all the the, the place that dara horn is coming to when she thinks about anti-semitism and judaism and what it means to be a jew in the world very much resonates with me in the sense that, like, this is the world that I grew up in. The world that, uh, again, it's probably related to my personal history, where my grandparents, you know, grandfather was in Shanghai, you know, with, with the mirror. Grandmother was in a Russian gulag, um, you know, so she's not, a, according to Yad Vashem, she's not an official Holocaust survivor, but she was in Russian prison camp for six years with my father, who only saw his father for the first time at the age of six. Um, the, you know, my mother's side of the family all fled Nazi Germany at Kristallnacht. And my family... The, the, the like message we always got was this message of 
um, you know, like basically, basically Dara Horn's message, which is the world is not a safe place for Jews. It's, it's just not. And you can have periods of grace in which um, I think America has been a period of grace since World War II. The Holocaust kind of traumatized the world. Um, and so like the, the, the effects of the Holocaust and I think the natural inclination of many of the foundational beliefs in America created a, a, a really wonderful time to, to be a Jew in, you know, as a minority in, in a diaspora experience. But I think it was a, unfortunately, um, an, a, an anomaly in Jewish experience. And that, that has always been my perspective. And a lot of the things that she says from that perspective, like her, even just the whole idea, and I'll try to make this short because I, I don't want to get, there's so much that she says that's so rich and we could, I don't no, want to no, so go start branch making, off. Start with a few points that you okay. want to that you So I'll just make like one small point, just like, just to like, just, just to like demonstrate like where, where it resonated with me, right? Where like, she talks about, like, even the name of the, of the book, like, People Love Dead Jews, right? Where, like, she, she kind of talks about how, like, non-Jews are, are much more comfortable with dead Jews because dead Jews are Jews, right? That Jews are supposed to be persecuted and killed. And then they, they are a morality play upon which the world can project the messages it wants to learn. So like that's like one thing she says, and obviously you can talk about what she means, and it's everything she says can be unpacked and talked about much more deeply. But like then I was just reminded of like my my uncle saying at the table that you know in 1948 Truman had a headline all set to go, assuming that the Jewish state would not survive, um, you know, the, being overrun by six Arab. Um, um, nations, and he had a whole eulogy written about the tragedy of the, you know, end of the Jewish people, which he didn't have to print because we actually won that war. But the idea that, like, that was the expectation of the world and that, like, the eulogy was ready to go. Like, that's it, just my whole perspective is, 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 is that perspective. And so I always find it bizarre when I encounter, like, Jews, again, I think particularly these are young American Jews who, like, grew up in this very sheltered, again, beautifully anomalous, wonderful time to be a Jew. And, 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 and it's a shock to them. And I'm like, I'm not really understanding why it's a shock to you. Because, like, again, to me, Halloween and Christmas are the days that, you know, you remember that, that, these, that, that, that like, um, Jews had to hide under their beds because, because that, that's just what they were. Which is not to say, by the way, that, that again, and I feel like I've said this before, but I, I feel like it's not right to not say, that there aren't obviously, <laughs> you know, like many, many non-Jews who, who are philo-Semites and who are, you know, like, like allies and friends and protectors of the Jewish people. I, I don't want to at all minimize that. But th that has not been the traditional Jewish experience throughout history. Now, why do I love this book? Because that was my given, right? And so I'm starting to read a book and I'm like, finally, this, this woman gets it. And then she starts delving deeper and saying things that I hadn't thought of before and, and kind of enriching my understanding and, and, and deepening my, 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 like, um, my perspective on all these issues. And I'm like, wow, this, this book is just, it's just, it's just a, a treasure trove of, of, of truths. And she's really mined these questions and come up with really, really intelligent and I think true things. So, so one of the things, um, and maybe this will lead us into discussion. Did you want to say something first? No, no. Okay, okay. So I'll, 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 I'll you know, again, she has so many things that, that 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 I think are so valuable to say, but I'll just say one because you know to kind of open up the conversation, which is, um, and again, I'll, I'll tie it to one of our conversations. We had a conversation when we were talking about Hanukkah. Um, and we kind of got kind of admired in this question of like, well, if Hanukkah is, is this holiday where we celebrate um, our, our, our difference, right? And our militant right to be different than other nations, right? Um, like, like, what about the civil war within the Jewish people, right? Because that's really what Hanukkah was about. And that's what we discussed, right? The Jews who were like, pro-assimilation versus the Jews who are anti-assimilation. And then we kind of got caught in this like inter-Jewish civil war conversation. And what I loved, loved about what Dara Horn did was that she widened the lens and she said, wait a second, why, rather than look at like, you know, rather than me deciding that I'm going to be like, 
you know, upset at my fellow Jew who decides to assimilate or who decides to, to kind of, you know, struggle with how much they're going to give up and how much they're not going to give up in order to be accepted into society. She's like, why don't we look at why culture, why culture does that and how it does that to the Jewish people? And she's, and she talked about Hellenization and she talked about how this happens to Jews and the gaslighting that happens to the Jewish people, where basically they're told by their host country, right, or by their host nation, which was true even, let's say, during Hanukkah, where, where the, you know, the ruling power were the Syrio-Greeks. You, you can, you can be Jewish, but as she says, you've got to be cool Jews, meaning you've got to be the kind of Jews that fit into our society. And the way you do that is that like you can hold on to some parts of your Jewish identity, but the parts that like aren't so cool and that like don't fit into our culture, those you've got to jettison. So like yeah, we got we to we gotta stop here. We got to go to Johnny because we got to come back to cool Jews. I think we might have to do a whole podcast on cool Jews. Okay, but wait, can I just finish yeah. my point? Yeah, please. So, yeah, yeah. Because I just want to, I want to like, what I, she brings this thread throughout the whole book, book, right? So it's like, you're really going to blame the Hellenizing Jews who were told like, you know, yeah, you could be part of us as long as you're like, you know, don't circumcise yourself because then you're not going to fit into our cool society. And then she brings the thread to so, the Soviet Jews who were told, yeah, you can have a place within the communist revolution and you can celebrate Yiddishism, Yiddishism and have Yiddish theater as long as you don't kind of focus too much on Jewish nationhood or Jew, Jewish religi religious aspects. And of course, what ended up happening to all of those Jews eventually, right? There's like the slow encroachment until they're all dead. And then she brings it to America, Right, which was, the, I think, such a fascinating um, chapter for us as American Jews, where she says, um, you know the story about how all our names were changed at Ellis Island? Right, we all know the story about how our right, grandparents right. right got to Ellis Island and oh, ha, 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 it was so funny. You know, the, the, the guy... Some clerk at the Ellis some Island. Some clerk, you know, how'd you get the name Sean Ferguson? You're not Irish. Well, I got there and I was told that my name was supposed to be, you know, Philip... Uh, you know, whatever. And then I got there and I said, oh, Shine Ferguson. And then I was Sean Ferguson. Ha ha, hysterical. <laughs> right? So It is a funny joke. It is it a funny is joke. Funny. There are many funny jokes, right? Um, but, but, but what she says is, never happened. Not one, okay, let me just finish this point. Not one person's name was changed at Ellis Island. She said, so then where did this come from? Where did this story that the Jews have been telling their children and grandchildren about the, the funny story about Ellis Island come to be? She said, who changed our names? We did. We changed our names. Why? Because America actually had tremendous social anti-Semitism. And it wasn't the Golden of Medina, quite the land of opportunity that we've all been told that it was and that we've been telling ourselves that it was. And who was it that, that said, well, in order to, su to succeed and survive, I'm going to have to change my name? It was the Jews. But did they ever say it's because of anti-Semitism? No, they never said that. Because how could they tell themselves that story? If they're endure, if, if they're if the Jewish like um, cultural story is we are resilient and we endure, right? And we can, and we we keep finding places that are gonna be shelters and we're gonna keep the continuity continuity of our people, but we're gonna also survive. How can we tell ourselves? Okay, let me just finish one more sentence. How can we tell ourselves that th this story of being persecuted? And so and so the Jews told themselves this different story. This funny so story. So many questions. So many okay. questions. There's we so gotta go to there. Rev Johnny. Right? There's We've got so to go much to Rev there. Johnny Molly and give him an opportunity Let's to share it. his thoughts and understanding. Okay, but do you understand why I find that so powerful? I find it so I mean, powerful on yes, two levels. Yes, but I think that, that I, I think it's I think that question needs to be broadened and expanded, and we'll come back to it. But you okay. know what I'm saying? That's it. About the cool <laughs> Jews, about, about... Okay, but before... Okay, I'm sorry. Let me just say one more thing. Just one I'm more sorry, Molly. No, no, I please. Cannot. Please, one sentence. Rob Johnny. Wait. Rob Johnny. Please, 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 please. One sentence. Rob Johnny, do you yield your time? Yeah, do you yield your time, Johnny? One sentence? Uh, uh, Molly is making a point. I, I really feel strongly about this. I just want to wrap it up because I feel so strongly about this. I think this is such an important insight into two things. One, which is how non-Jews have treated Jews... And, and there's a consistent like thread. And the other is how, how that has impacted how we as Jews respond and treat ourselves and find a place in the world. And that's where I found it fascinating. Okay, now I've got to respond. So, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. She acts as if, I don't think she's acts as if. She says, don't blame, the, don't blame the Jews. Excuse me, of course you have to blame the Jews because they decided not to resist. Meaning, you, there, there was a group of Jews that said, 
I'm not going to accept your white shoe law firm, whatever. And then another group of Jews that said, in spite, because of this anti-Semitism, I have to sort of change who I am. So this, I'm going to keep that on the side and turn it you mean You understand what I'm saying? Meaning, mm-hmm. yes, answer, of but course, let's, 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 let's let Johnny speak there. first. Of course. Oh, now we so, want Johnny so, to speak. Now Molly wants Johnny to speak. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Johnny, go ahead. I, 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 sp- I think, well, first, it's a fascinating book. And, and, and it's fascinating not only because it brings to light facts that we know and facts that we don't know, but also because it's written so eloquently with such she really paints this uh, profound historical tapestry with 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 you know a great uh, uh, skill in doing so so it's compelling and it's profound and once you finish the book you say wow now i see a fuller picture of phenomena that i thought i understood but only now do i see it in all its uh, i wouldn't quite say glory now, why is it such a compelling book? Because we all know about historical anti-Semitism. Like, we unfortunately taught about it. Our families went through this. But what she really focuses on is a modern period. She kind of says, we think that this is what happened in the past. But then she brings to light a whole bunch of contemporary events, things that have happened in recent years. And she says, pay attention to this and this and how we've responded to them and how the wider world have responded to them. And doesn't that they say something about expectations of Jews, the role of the Jew, right? The place of the Jew. And let me just give a couple of uh, examples, one that she brings and one that I'd like to bring from my own uh, experience. The one that really is startling her book is where she speaks about somebody who works in the Anne Frank Museum who wishes to wear a yarmulke. And... Uh, that's all. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Johnny, I have to stop for a second. Did you read the news today about Anne Frank? Yes, I, I did. I didn't yet read the news today about so Anne Frank. So a news study came out, and they think that the person who turned ah, out who hit, turned yes. in Anne Frank was one of the leaders Somebody of the Jewish doing. community who was trying to save his own family, which is like somehow, I mean, obviously it's not related, but it is related, meaning you know, succumbing to this outside pressure in order to do what's good for you. And you know, so go ahead. I'm sorry, but go ahead and give your example. It was just so relevant well, to me well, today. I knew we were talking about that. Right, of course. So um, so what she tells us there is this individual who's wearing yarmulke was basically asked not to because it's not appropriate. And the worker thinks, one second, this is a house that's all about saying that Jews shouldn't have to hide their identity, and you're basically telling me exactly that. Now, after four months of deliberations, they agreed that it would be acceptable. Then she says, you know what else also happened there is where they have the different languages uh, for the tourists who come to Anne Frank's house, uh, with every country comes along the flag of that country, America, the American flag, French, the French flag. But for Israel, at least for a certain point, it wasn't the Israeli flag. And, and sh- what she wants us to realize is, unfortunately, people treat the Jew differently. They want to tell the story of the dead Jew, the Anne Frank, um, but they'd rather not kind of give support to, at times, the living Jew, and, and I'll give a different example, and I suppose what's so striking in those cases is you're there in the Anne Frank house. This is not like a distant image. You're literally there. And another one, um, if I, I don't know if either of you have been to York, but you know in 1190 in York, there was a, there was a York massacre, yeah, the Kinos, right? And the there's Kinos a tower, Clifford's Tower, where Jews were basically forced to take their own lives. And imagine living in a city where you've got this big tower, where there's a plaque that says Jews are persecuted to such an extent they took their own life. In fact, there's an ancient Jewish cemetery from that time, in the 12th century, 11th century, which uh, was found, in fact, it, like she refers to cemeteries, so I'm mentioning this now, which is really the, uh, underneath the car park of a local Sainsbury's uh, supermarket. So you also have a plaque there, Jews are buried here, Jews took their lives here. But as somebody, I've visited York a number of times, but, and when I do, there's a feeling that, you know, don't be too Jewish. And you're thinking, what? How could it be that a city which has this past, why isn't it more supportive of living Jews? You know, or welcoming. In fact, there's a, there's a myth, that there's, there's a cherem on, on the city of York itself based on what happened. But putting that aside, there can be places which scream, surely we need to protect the lives of those who've been persecuted, in this case, certainly the Jews. And yet the Jew <coughs> feels that they have to hide who they are. Uh, and this bespeaks this kind of narrative of, of we know this happened, but don't fight about it. I'll give you one more example. 
uh, I don't know if you've read, uh, seen that movie Denial about Deborah Lipstadt's defense of her book from David Irving, who sued her, right? And she won the case. But what's interesting in the movie is when she was considering fighting back this uh, libel case, she was told, especially by the British community, who it's important to note the British experience feels this even more strongly than the American Jewish experience because of our numbers. She was told by the J British Jews, don't fight back. You know, you know, we know the Holocaust happened. And the British Jews. Who, yeah. Who, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say all, of course. I'm talking about a, a, a certain select group that decided to be her advisors. Uh, in the end, she was defended by a brilliant British Jew. But the whole idea is we know the Holocaust happened, but let's not speak too much about us, you know, living and writing books. And you're thinking, what are you on about? That's crazy. To defend the Holocaust, I need to have a voice today. But for many people, that's a hard equation to solve. So overall, what we see from, uh, from this book is a certain kind of, uh, a, say, pattern of the wider world acknowledging dead Jews, but being less supportive of live Jews. And so one final, final example. I sent you an article just today. Um, a, a museum celebrating the origins of, uh, of, of Hollywood has downplayed the role of Jews. And uh, that seems a little bit... Looks like, Looks like they just power. had a power outage. I wonder if Johnny's still talking. Okay, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll, I want to discuss, have, take some questions and discuss some questions about, uh, that we have about, our, about some of the things you raised and uh, uh, follow up and continue the conversations. Everybody stay with us. We'll be right back. So many Jews around the world are searching for a daily learning program that will bring them meaning and allow them to accomplish real learning in a reasonable amount of time. Hey everybody, my name is Ruben Spolter. I live in Israel in Yad Vinyamid. And for a number of years, for many years, I've been teaching daily Mishnah and what's called the Mishnah Yomit program over YouTube. Mishnah is a wonderful way to have daily learning. It includes all of the knowledge of Shas. It's compact. You can cover it in a reasonable amount of time. If you fall behind, which happens to all of us, you can catch up pretty easily. And really, Mishnah is an incredible source of knowledge for, for Jewish wisdom. It's the, the source text of everything about Tarash Balper oral traditions. So I invite you to join me in this incredible project. So many people have reached out from around the world. We've had hundreds of thousands of views, hundreds if not thousands of participants. Make Mishnah Yomi daily learning a part of your life. The sages tell us the Gemara Nida, Tana Debe Eliyahu. It taught in the house of Eliyahu. Kol b'chol yom, Anyone who studies Shoneh, who repeats Halachot every day, it's a promise that he is a Ben Olam Haba. So, first, I just want to point out two things. Halachot, Rashi says, Mishnah Ubraita Halacha Moshe Misinai. Really, in their times, Halacha was Mishnah. And he focuses on b'chol yom, every day. Someone who studies every day, we promise, he's promised to be a person, a ben olam haba, a person who has a portion of the world to come, because I believe it's obvious. A person who studies Mishnah every day, he brings spirituality and meaning into his life on a daily basis. I invite you to join me in this Mishnah project. We have a website, a WhatsApp group, a Telegram channel. There are so many ways for you to join and be part of daily learning. Together as we learn Mishnah Yomit. Make it a great day. And we're back for part two. Johnny's back with us. The power outage in Eben Shmuel is Baruch Hashem over. Johnny, everything okay in Eben Shmuel? Everything is good. I think it was a house thing, but we're <laughs> back. Right. Baruch Hashem. Mali, I want to uh, follow up on a number of things that you said, actually. And first, I'm going to go to Johnny and give him a chance to respond to some of the things that you said. But I want to focus specifically like, on what Horn says is about like cool Jews that obviously resonates very strongly and you're like, ah, this is my thesis. But I wonder, I'm going to bring it into our religious community. I listened to her and said the same thing. Oh, finally somebody's saying something. But to me, I'm not sure, like I think you attribute it to the fact that your grandparents are survivors and you know, this is a Masorah in your family, like a, a family Masorah, like in Russia and whatever. And my grandfather also, my whole grandfather's whole family is wiped out. I'm not sure if that's true. I wonder 
like to because we're religious people and we all received a religious education. So last week in the Torah we said, Vayavo Amalek, you know, and it says, In religious education, the notion of the presence of an Amalek is something that you learn about on Purim. It's something that you you learn about in Tanakh class. It's and and that's reinforced by reinforced by by you know the events like you know when you see a Colleyville, Texas, you're like, ah, oh, that thing I learned, that thing I just read in Prashat Shavua, right? That makes sense to me. It fits my worldview. Whereas for Dara Horn or the people who are reading her book, who are not steeped in this stuff, or maybe maybe we're not steeped in. I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Then it's like, oh my God, like whoa, I, it like shakes their worldview, and that's why it's so so distressing to them because they have to really re-examine. So my question for you, Johnny, is: Isn't this something that's just a part of our part of of Yahadut? It's really something that we can't explain. It doesn't make any sense. But the presence of Amalek is always there. You know, it's always going to be there. And and there's some kind of maybe the thing we're saying, aha, is aha, the rest of the Jewish world, maybe hopefully, is some segment of it is waking up to the reality that we just understand theologically. Uh, you know, I, to answer your question, we have to discuss time. And uh, something that Dara speaks about early in the book is the difference between how traditional Jews look at time and how uh, Jews with less of an understanding of Jewish history and many non-Jews look at time. Uh, we believe in cyclical time. We see how events of the past continue to revisit us in one respect or another. Whereas many others look at time in just as a linear thing. Things happen in the past. It's interesting, remember. But that doesn't necessarily uh, impact your day-to-day -day living. And uh, as such, when you and I hear the story of Amalek, we don't just hear that as an event in the past, just as much as when we celebrate Pesach. We see that as being part and parcel of our lived experience, although at the same time we're disappointed when the lessons of that lived experience aren't reapplied. Uh, you know, nowadays we have more Holocaust museums than ever before, yet we see anti-Semitism rising. I'm going to ask you about that. How We're come? going to come back to that. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. How come? Cause it, because just because people say this happened in your past doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be there for you in terms of protecting you in your present. Uh, so those who hear about Amalek and who have a sense of Jewish time and Jewish history say... We know that that's there to teach us memory, not history. But those who know about Jewish history but don't understand the concept of Jewish memory, I, I think uh, they hear those stories and they say, you know, it's a shame that happened to Jews then. But they don't necessarily realize the implications of, of, of the human situation even till today and how there are contradictions in behavior. And there's a blind spot, basically, of the Jew even in the modern period. So then what are they hearing? It's really interesting that you say that, because when Molly first mentioned like how the you know, 20th century America was like this incredible, after the Holocaust, this incredible uh, opportunity for, you know, for Jewish life to, to grow and, and sprout, I immediately in my mind, I just want to tell you, thought of a wave. Thought of like, there's a wave, like, you know, like waves go up and down, exactly like you said, like a cycle. And I thought, well, the wave of the Holocaust was like ridiculous, like off the charts. So then the wave of anti-Semitism has to sort of reflect that, have to go back down. Whereas in normal history, it's like, you know, up and down and up and down. Like sometimes you have like a lot more anti-Semitism, less anti-Semitism, more. That's it really, Molly, that's how I pictured it in my mind. So it's interesting that John, you talk about the idea of, well, I'm coming back to you, of, of, of cycles, like, you know, of, of cycles of time, of lived experience. But what, I'm, what I want to know is, so the, the Jewish world, not... Landsman, not our, not the people listening to this podcast by and large, not most of them, because there's our, our little clique. The Jewish world who's reading Darahorn's book, what are they experiencing? What are they thinking? They're, oh my God, it's right just now and we can fight it and beat it? Because when I read this book, I'm like, Boker Tov Darahorn, you know, Baruch Hashem, I'm glad you came to this realization. But what, what are they hearing? How, if they don't have that traditional sense of cyclical time, then what are they reading? What are they, what are they experiencing? Well, I think that pro the problem is, and uh, she's not so explicit about this, is a lot of Jews, unfortunately, define their identity also in light of 
the terrible past that our people have experienced, they define their Jewishness through sometimes Holocaust. She's saying people love their Jews. There are Jews who unfortunately think of their Jewishness a lot, I, not exclusively. My note, it says Jews love dead Jews. I know it's hard to say, but like I was thinking exactly the same thing. I mean, you're been well, I, I, I would be reluctant to use the word love, but they, as if to say an axis of Jewish identity is very much no, it makes them comfortable the in their the Judaism Jew. to define their Judaism through dead Jews. That's how they define them. Johnny, you've been in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in traditional shuls around the world. What is the most popular time for people to come to shul? Right. I've written about that. Yes. Yom Kippur. When in Yom Kippur? Okay, so so when we're talking about the Eila Eskra and things like that, no, she makes references. No, no, Yisker. Oh, Yisker. Yeah. You mean... Okay, but say that yes, because also some, somewhat personal. That there's something slightly different about that, but um, I, I suppose what she tries, to, what she does effectively, which I think all three of us intuitively understood and see, is reveal how the wider world, including many Jews, seem to reference the Jew closer to the dead Jew than the live Jew. Let's be right. That's, I suppose, how we can best express that. How the live Jew is often a caricature, uh, but the dead Jew is given a lot of respect. And how even sometimes Jews have gotten so used to that that we kind of almost expect that, which is sad. That's not to say that only Jews can cure anti Semitism, that's certainly not the case. But it is to say that we've allowed a certain status quo to. Uh, be to create such that it's we we don't we're not outraged that it takes four months for a committee to figure out that it's appropriate for a Jew in the Anne Frank house to wear a kippah. We should be. I mean, that shouldn't just be. It's crazy, but we kind of say, well, that's just what happens, and that's not what should just happen. No, she was the level of outrage. She's upset Jews. about it. She is shocked by it. I'm not shocked by it. Molly, are you shocked by it? Reading it, Let's no, go to Molly. Can you respond? I want you to respond to my question because you obviously spend much of your career teaching Judaism, teaching young people. Uh, I'd like you to relate to the, my question about Misora and about whether this is a religious experience versus a historical experience and how you put those two together. That's an interesting question. First of all, her, she herself, Dara Horn, is a, a quite educated, connected, um, uh, practicing Jew. And yeah. so when you when you described, you're like, oh, she, you know, she very much is the kind of person that you're describing, um, which I think is also part of you know, like her reaction, she's not so far from, from what you're describing, um, you know, and her kids, she, when she describes, she's like, oh, my kids are totally not shocked by anti-Semitism. She's like, they're like, yeah, like the story of, of, of Passover and the story of Hanukkah and the story of Purim, like her, her kids get it because her kids are, are educated um, Jews. So I think it's a little bit too binary the way you, you said it, um, meaning it's, it's not quite so black and white. I think there are also like I've had conversations with modern Orthodox American Jews um, who are who 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 are in that camp of like shocked and like you know disagree with her thesis and find it you know way too negative and and that's that's not the American experience and that's so, and, and like there's almost this sense of like I think it's like an internalized denial of the, of this reality because it's too painful it's it's just going to break the illusion that they need to create for themselves so I don't know that it's quite as binary, binary as you say but I do think something that's really interesting is. What Johnny described as um, this like historical slash, I don't know, what, what did you use, theological memory? Yes. That's, that's her answer, ultimately. And it's so beautiful because what you're describing, um, she does go through this process, right? There's like one chapter about American Jewry and it's about Pittsburgh and the Tree of Life. And it ends with like, and at that time, there was so much outreach from the Jewish from the non-Jewish community. And I was hoping America were better than this and we're going to be America and we're going to get through it. And then the, the last chapter of the book is the attack in New Jersey on the on the um, supermarket, right? Where it was, where, where, where like, the Jews who were attacked were not the, you know, Americanly, Americanly comfortable Jews because they were um, Haredi, they were Hasidish, yes. And the attackers were not the comfortable Jews, the, the, the comfortable attackers that American liked because they're not um, right the, mi white the majority white right. supremacists. They were a minority community and America doesn't like to criticize 
or identify minority communities when they attack Jews. And so she was like horrified by the response to that, where, where like all of a sudden there's conversation about what did the Jews do to bring this upon themselves? It was the gentrification and, you know, tensions in the community. And it really infuriated her. And, and her solution, right, she, the, basically the end of the book, her refuge, her hope is essentially what Johnny was describing. She turns back inward into her relationship with the Jewish community, right? Her solution to this, to this um, dilemma, where she just like realizes that the, the like the truth of of the reality that Jews will always be living in, is to immerse herself in her connection to the Jewish people, and specifically, I would say this timeless connection. She starts learning Dafyomi. Right? And she talks about the Gemara, and she talks about how many generations are communicating with each other, and they're asking questions, and they're talking about endurance, and they're talking about um, responsibility, and they're talking about building a broken world, and that's where she finds her refuge, ultimately. Right? It's almost like she like resigns herself. She almost comes to where, what you're saying. I'm just saying I'm not necessarily convinced that, like, oh, No, I agree with you. I obviously are... set it up as black and white. Actually, right. I remember... set it up I heard as, black, a... as black and I, white. I heard, I heard an interview where she said that there was... Um... There was like a rally after one of these events. I don't think it was Tree yeah. of Life, and like, and all the leadership and a bunch of Jews and like all the state, state senators came. It was like a thousand people, yeah. and like that same week, she said it was it was Siyum Hashas, and yes, there were like she writes about that seventy thousand exactly. people exactly. in you know MetLife exactly. Stadium. And exactly. She's like, which group do I want to be a part of? Exactly, and like, and, and I think it's very beautiful. It was beautiful her writing. It's so beautiful, and she immerses herself in that world. She immerses herself in the world of the Siyam Hashas, even though, obviously, there's, there are many places in which that's not no, the really want her all. there at the Siyam Hashas. Yeah, <laughs> and she'll admit that, but it's, that's why there's something, again, there's, so, there's something so, I find her to be such a um, really deep, profound person, and a person I really admire from, from, from a lot of these places. But I just want to say one thing, because, Ruby, like, you know, there's this question kind of underlying what you're saying, which is like, What's wrong with all these Jews that don't get it, right? Like, like, what is it? Just because they're not educated in history? Is it because they're lying? And 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 here again, I want to go back to like something that she opened my eyes to, back in the in the um, in the um, in the chapter about America, where she says America's not the first place that Jews kind of told themselves a story that wasn't really true about getting there. She says the same thing happened in Spain and the same thing happened in Poland. There's always an origin story that says, the, you know, Poland, Poland. How long were Jews in Poland? Thousands of years? A thousand years? Right? Right? What does the name Poland mean? Poline, right? Po-naline. Here, here is going to be awesome for the Jews, right? And she says when they got this, like, there's some kind of origin story with the Jews arriving from Spain, from like, you know, the Chorban, and how the rabbis were like accepted by the Spanish leaders. And she said Jews needed to tell themselves two things because Jews have always been vulnerable. And therefore, they would always tell themselves in their origin story two things. One is, here it's going to be different, here it's going to be safe. And two is, here we are going to be free to have continuity of our Jewish experience. And when you think about it from that perspective, the vulnerability of the Jew, right? And that, then it starts to make sense why the Jew sets up all of these defense mechanisms. This like, well, I don't want to be too Jewish, and I don't want to bother anybody, and, you know... Um, I'm not going to fall into the into the victimhood cult and we're just going to like keep our heads low and integrate because I need to tell myself a certain story in order to survive and to thrive. And when you view it through that lens, Ruby, right, I feel like you can have a lot more kind of understanding and compassion for this Jewish response that, again, to you and to me, it's like, well, Jews, why aren't you noisier? Why don't you, you know demand your rights why why do we keep our heads down why do we blame ourselves why do we accept things like oh yes the reason that you know if people are attacking people in Muncie is because of gentrification that's the reason why do we stand for it right as Johnny's saying like why do the Jews of of, of um of England and of York just stand for this let's not be too Jewish or like you know my son says you go now to Auschwitz and they've painted over you know they're like the gas chambers used to be like like whatever color, blue or green, because of the Zyklon B gas, they painted it over. It was not pleasant to see that. And so the so they painted it over so that like it would be a little bit less unpleasant to go to Auschwitz. Why do we stand for all those things, right? Yeah, so what I'm saying is we all have this part that's like, what is wrong with us? And I think that also might be part of our Israeli response because Israelis are like, you know, 
we are never standing for this again. That's been a very Israeli response. But when you're still vulnerable, when you're still a, a, a guest in a host country and you need to survive, I understand why you do it. So I want to, I want to respond by telling you a story. I don't know if Johnny had this experience as well. When, I, when our first child was born, so we named him after my father. My father's name was Simcha and his English name was Seymour. So there was no way we were going to give him that English name, you know, because we love our child. But, uh, but we did give him a second name, which was an English name, because we didn't want him, like, when he would go to school or would call in the doctor's office or whatever, like, we didn't want to, you know, and my second child, we called him Bitsalo Joseph on his uh, Social Security card. And then in between, I think it was at the time, I don't remember exactly, but some time after that, Barack Hussein Obama was elected president of the United States. And I don't want to be negative. Barack. Barack Hussein Say Obama. Obama. That was his full name. And I, 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 like, and I don't want to, that's not critical at all. He was elected president of the United States. And okay. I said, if my, the president of the United States can be Barack Hussein Obama, because they always oh, said that Obama would never get elected because his middle name was Hussein, mm. then I can call my son Chaim Petachia Spolter. And, and that's what we put on his social security card. And so we sort of went through this like process as well of like, no, we don't want it to be too hard. And, you know, and of course the poor nurse at the doctor's office would be like, shame, shame, Spolter, like, you know, like, you know, but it, 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 so all of us do this to some degree to try to fit in versus trying to, I, I'm sure, Johnny, I don't know if they have that in, in England as well, but the idea of the- in, Well, in England, it was, it was a done thing. Uh, I remember, my name is Jonathan Johnny, right? What? But I had a friend of mine who I'd known for many, many years. I knew him as Aryeh. And somehow I was looking, we were in Yeshiva together, and he had to take out his passport. I said, who's Alexander? He said, that's my name. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he says, no, my first name is Alexander, you know, because Jews have to have a, a secular name just in case. Yeah, but just so in case, obviously, right. I'm, right, I'm Aryeh to my friends and family. I said, you know, you don't realize that you don't know people because there's always this fear. It just as a flip side, by the way, my wife's English name is Donna, but when we made Aliyah, she said, you know what? I want my Tudatzot to be oh, my Jewish name. My wife and did so the same thing. She, she Hebrewized right. her name. Yeah. Right. I mean, but, I'm a, Abraham Ruben, Abraham Ruben. So they just put in Abraham Ruben right away. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but in my English name, is not Abraham Ruben. It's Abraham Ruben on my, on my passport. Because mm -hmm. that's what my mm -hmm. parents did. That's what everybody did. And it's really, it's really interesting. I, I want to go back to, Molly, I want to push back on something that you said that, and, and really wonder, like when you mentioned about Abraham talking about the exile experience or that I actually experience of feeling the pressure to assimilate. It very much made me think about the, the experience or the history of the modern state of Israel because religious Jews will tell you that, especially at the beginning of the state, there was incredible similar pressure. And this pressure exists to this very day. You know, the army is considered the kur hahituch of, of the state of Israel, and it's a place where like everybody sort of becomes Israeli in the mind's eye of whatever the Ashkenazim felt that the army should be in, in the beginning of the state. And we're now in a different place, but uh, I don't know if we're completely in, that, in, the, in the correct place. But even in the Jewish state itself, there was, there was an attempt to find the right idea of what a Jew is supposed to be, and it certainly wasn't very Jewish. So how would you respond to that? I mean, isn't that like a sort of, uh, I would say, a pircha on Hershita? On Horn's, uh, the opposite. Th theory? I would say the opposite. I would say I think the history of the Jewish state is is a un. It, it's kind of I'm kind of thinking this through as I'm saying it, but it's 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 really an interesting contrast because it's it's like I I now view the the experience of the Jew in the host country as like one giant gaslit experience. Right where they're gaslit by the host country, which says to them, "Oh, you're so welcome here, and you're welcome here as a Jew, as long as you're the kind of Jew that we need you to be, and as long as you know you you jettison the aspect of Judaism that we don't want you to have." Right, and and it, it's it's a again, it's gaslighting. Right, it's like it makes you feel like well. If I don't agree with you, I'm the crazy one, right? As opposed to saying, no, you're you're doing something wrong by doing that to me. You're the ones making me crazy, right? So the whole Jewish experience for thousands of years in the diaspora has been that gaslit experience where they've taken on 
that 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 message that was given to them by their host countries again whether it was in russia or whether it was in america or whether it was in poland or or china right the story of the chinese jew wherever it was and and and, and what i think is, is quite fascinating is like you know, some people criticize this book. They say, why is she focusing on Jewish victimhood? And I'd say the opposite. This is the opposite of victimhood. This is Jews refusing to be victims and saying, fine, I'm going to survive in this society any way I can. And if this is what I need to do to survive, then this is what I'm going to do to survive. And Jews have therefore not... So I kind of pushed back Wait, wait, let me finish because I want to get back to I kind of pushed on you before, pushed back before, but I need to push back now because there were Jews that said, that said, okay, this is what I need to do to survive. But the question is, what's the definition of survival? And, and okay. what are you willing to sacrifice of your identity? Yes. And I'm not coming to question. Okay, so, 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 so it's a great question, right? But the point is, who put us in there in the first place? We no, did not put I'm ourselves... Not, I'm not absolving and, and, the non-Jewish society. I'm not doing that. Right, and so I'm saying, don't forget that piece. And then, yes, we can do a self-reckoning, you know, as you said before, about like, you know, and, and we can be proud of Jews who, you know, said Ad Khan, Right. And we can say, like, you know, for all that you were gaslit, I think that, you know, the Jews who made deals with the devil in all certain in all kinds of difficult historical situations, we're not so proud. You know, they shouldn't really be super proud of their behavior. I'm not going to let them off the hook. Everybody has personal responsibility. Um, but to, just to come back to your point about the state of Israel, I think that it's really interesting to think about it from that perspective, because it's like the Ashkenazi elite that showed up and founded the country right, walking in with that same gaslit perspective, right, which is like, oh, well, what the non-Jews told me is that the way to survive in this world is to jettison my, you know, all that, you know, um, old, tattered, traditional Judaism, I'm going to be a good citizen of the world, right? Even think about Herzl thinking, well, the first solution is let's all become Christians, right? And then, or like, like all the, all the struggles in the beginning of the state, what, what's going to keep us, what's going to help us survive and what's keeping us from survival, right? And all those people who said, well, what's keeping us from survival is too much traditionalism and too much religion. We've got to get rid of that. And it, that's exactly that, that, again, what I'm going to call that gaslit perspective, and that's the state, they brought it with them. But what's so interesting is that 73 years later, right, that world, it's not, it's, it, it kind of fell, fell apart. We don't need it anymore. Instead, um, what we have are Jews who are increasingly in touch with their traditions and with their culture. And with all those parts of Judaism that maybe even their fellow Jew, right, their Ashkenazi said to the Sephardi or to the, to the Temani, too Jewish, too uncomfortable, nah, I don't like your payas, right? And now we're in a place where it's like, that's what we need to be proud of. Yes, but right? as long as you're singing Hello by Lionel Richie and not some Seder, Sephardic song. that's a question of, no, that's not true. I, think, uh, I, I don't think that that's true. If that true. guy that sang they, a Sephardic song, he would never have made it to the finals on The Voice. I promise you that. And that was like Seder. so that, that Okay, that so then there's still an ongoing conversation in in you Israel with me? itself. You disagree with me? If I, I would say, it's a pop it's I'm a popular sure. music the, 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 show. Yeah, so there, there are people who definitely said exactly to him, I want to see you be It's a popular music no, show. No, but they Ruby, don't he was want, he was don't told give me your Sephardiness. Give me your no, Sephardiness no. as long one as of, it's on my terms. One of the judges said to him, You know how you're gonna get to Eurovision? You sing Sephardi songs. Because today that's what's cool, right? What's cool is 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 your, you know proud of your ethnic subculture especially if it's a minority i wonder, ethnic I, I wonder. that struck me whatever that's it's a different it's an interesting conversation that you're raising i just think that like um it, it even if there are people who still think that way right in the world and I, and I think you're right there are people who still think that way in the world and there are people who still think all over the world which is why some people disagree with her book and some people agree but i think her thesis i think is correct which is that slowly people are starting to understand what it has always meant to be a Jew. And I think it's really interesting that the response, her response, and what I'm saying is maybe the, the Israeli Jewish response is, I, I, I'm, I'm done trying to fit into this culture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be proud of, my histor of all aspects of my Judaism um, and... And, and again, it's interesting because she, she doesn't touch Zionism with a 10-foot pole. She doesn't touch Israel with a 10-foot pole. And she did that on purpose because she didn't want her book to be controversial. Controversial. So her solution is like, this is going to be my refuge. 
we, those of us, right, because this is our Zerikli, those of us who have an option of the state of Israel, our solution is, bye-bye world, we're going to create, we're like, we are going to now be Jews, you know, fully Jewish in a, in a state where we don't have to apologize for anything. Yeah, 100%. Now, I want to comment on something, and then we'll let Johnny wrap it up, and then we'll let Johnny wrap it up. It seemed that I was listening, I don't know, did you guys hear her podcast also? Did I you did. listen to her podcast? I didn't, yeah, so if you listen to her podcast, I only listen to a couple of them. She has more stories and more I- examples. I found it difficult to listen to because her whole podcast, while she was reading all these things about Prague and whatever, and I don't know if you've heard interviews with her, she does the same thing. She has this lilt in her voice that's like, can you believe this? Like, you know, like, like you know, even when she was telling the story about the Prague thing and, uh, and you know, the Anne Frank house and you know what I'm saying? All these things, she has this sort of like, Oh my God, these non-Jews, like as if she's surprised and if she's still surprised, as if it's, it's something that's, that, that doesn't fit. And, and I think that even now, like you said, I think that she's still uncomfortable with what she discovered. I mean, if you were in any interview, she said, I never wanted to write this book. And the reason I only began to write this book was because they kept coming to me as the go-to person for comfort when there was an attack against the Jews. And she's like, like I'm tired of doing this. And you get the sense that even now she's upset that she had to write the book. And I wonder, like for me, so like you said, us the traditional people understand that the solution, and she didn't write Zionism, but I love how you brought that together. Molly, I totally agree. I didn't think about that. Our solution is, I'm going to be an authentic Jew in the only place that you can be an authentic Jew unapolog- un- unapologetically. Right? The only place where I don't have to feel bad. I can be whatever Jew I want to be and however, however I want to do that. But I think that most Jews are reading her book and saying, oh my God, anti-Semitism is still here. We have to fight this. And, and they're totally missing her entire thesis, which is you can't fight it. You, we were never able to fight it. We just ride the waves, and sometimes it's bad, and sometimes it's less bad, but it's always there. And, and what I'm afraid is her book is popular because it's true, but not because people want to hear what, what you and I agree are her underlying message. And uh, sadly, I, I think that plays out over time. Like you said, it, to come to the real reality like she does and return to tradition and face those questions perhaps might be so painful that it's easier to say, okay, so we got to give another donation to ADL and have another training session and have an, build another Holocaust museum as opposed to really asking some harder, deeper questions. All right, I want to turn it over to Johnny if, to, if you have any parting thoughts. I suppose my parting thought goes back to the thing I was talking about before about, about Hollywood. And, and I, 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 maybe she doesn't quite say it this way, but I think it's worthwhile noting. You know, the media have sometimes, in, in a strikingly eerie way, been able to capture the horror of Jews dying. We've yet to see on kind of regular TV or movies a balanced p- portrait of a Jew who lives. You get to see it. Like, in, in almost every time a Jew appears anywhere, uh, it, it's, it's a caricature, often a very ugly one. And, I, and that's what's so unsettling. I, you know, it's amazing. It's sometimes admirable how some of the Jewish stories have been told with such sensitivity, the stories of the demise of the Jew. But please... You know, pay a little bit more attention to not just—it's not even the strength, but to the richness of Jewish life of a Jew. And there are often the odd documentary where people kind of go into a Jewish neighborhood and try and find out how things are. But nevertheless, that portrait is one which there seems to be a reluctance to uh, to depict. And the question she's really trying to understand is why, and it seems to be because the odds are stacked against that ever being wished to be portrayed. And we as Jews should say, great, good for the, all the movies, good for all the museums, we appreciate it, but the life of the Jew isn't going to be saved by people knowing that Jews were killed. Yeah, It's going to be by people recognizing that there is this rich, extraordinary religion and culture that has a commitment an ability to adapt and yet survive and look at the Met Stadium. Look at how there's been this revival. Look at it not with 
an attempt to twist it to do with Israel or with an attempt to twist it to do with power, but just see this as a story and, and be prepared to tell it. And once that happens, wonderful. But unfortunately, we all continue to wait with bated breath. And just to go back, that what's striking, and we mentioned Israel, what has emerged in recent years, the fact that a number of series from Israel have become very popular on Netflix, right? Only until we tell our story as those who are capable of living a strong Jewish life will others perhaps uh, at least pay some attention to it. So, it's, so although there is a bias against from others, there is a duty within for us to step up. Okay. I want to, by the way, I want to thank both of you for having this conversation and just being open to it, open to a more, you know, usually we're much more focused and know where we want to go. And I want to thank you for having that openness. I really felt that this conversation was, was important to have. And Molly, you've been wanting to have it for a while to sort of flesh out these issues. And I, I really like, I have to think about the, 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 the issue of Zionism, like you said, she didn't bring it in at all, but obviously it's, it's there and it's critical and has to be like struggled with in, in, in the bigger picture. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you to Molly Brevsky. Thank you to Rabbi Johnny Solomon. My name is Duvain Spolter. Thank you, Tachia Spolter, our music man. And have a great week, everybody. See you soon.